Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And our semi-theme for this week on the show has been Teen Queens because in the last podcast we talked about Taylor Swift who is, I mean, she's the teen queen. Yeah, she is crushing the music industry in a good way. Yeah. I guess more raising it up. Anyway, I'll let Kristen talk. Although she's not a teenager anymore, so she's more the queen of teens. Sure. But now I'm getting into semantics. (laughs) Um, But today we're going to talk about teeny boppers and fangirls, specifically younger female fans of pop music, because this really segues from Taylor Swift, because... Uh, she's often marginalized by her haters because she is most adored by young girls. Yep, and the attitude is, obviously, if young girls like you, you can't be that great. Yeah, because young girls don't have any real music taste at all. So, and and we're not saying that. That's not our opinion. <laughs> right. We're delivering the opinion of often, I don't know, music snobs, could we call them? Sure. Some critics. Yeah. Um, so we want, though, to kick off with an early history of music fandom, which doesn't begin with Frank Sinatra and Bobby Soxer is going crazy for him. This was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes all the way back to the 19th century when public music performances and the development of musical stars really emerged. And this is coming from an indispensable paper that we found by Daniel Cavici called Loving Music, Listeners, Entertainers, and the Origins of Music Fandom in 19th Century America. Yeah, this gave some fascinating perspective because I I honestly really, well, not that I I think about fans and fangirls and teeny boppers all all that much, but I totally just thought, yeah, Beatles, yeah, that's where Elvis, that's where it goes back to. But yeah, all the way back to the early to mid 19th century, we get music snobs. So one early music lover talking about the influence that music can have on you was 24-year-old opera fan Lucy Lowell of the Massachusetts Lowells, who wrote in 1884, I suppose it can't be good for a person to go to things that excite her so that she can't fix her mind on anything for days afterwards. Which sounds similar to the kind of adoring fangirling bestowed upon Taylor Swift, One Direction, etc. Mm-hmm. Although I have a feeling that people probably weren't tearing their hair out and crying hysterically at the opera. <laughs> but it's a similar kind of thing of just being fixated on these musical performances. Yeah. So in the 1820s, this is when we first get the slang word star, which emerges in the theater, talking about the, well, you know, stars. The stars. The stars of the theater. The stars were born in the 1820s, Caroline. That's right. And then we see the evolution of music consumption in the mid to late 19th century because there were more and more public spaces actually built just for Music that facilitated the commercial growth of this kind of entertainment. You get more concert halls, pleasure gardens, museum stages, and taverns. And taverns. Yeah, people have always played in bars. Can we bring back pleasure gardens, though? Sure. Because those are places I would like to go as often as possible. uh, Have a little quartet playing? Yeah, where is is my local pleasure garden? I don't Uh, know. I don't know, but don't Google that. That sounds like that could get you some bad results. It's just a Dave and Buster's these (laughs) days. 
days. <laughs> but in the 1850s, though, this is when professional virtuosos began touring nationally, which really helped transform public musical performances into more commercial entertainment and also made it more of a social ritual. You go out and you see the star mm-hmm. who's coming through town. You go to the pleasure garden to see the virtuoso. <laughs> And this is when we really get our early music lovers. So maybe not as fanatic, to use that important term, as a Beatlemaniac or as a Taylor Swift or One Direction fan. But people who are still forming because of these new technologies, because of these new social rituals, they're able to form connections with these entertainers. And they really do their best to not only consume the new musical culture as much as possible, but to also make it their own. For instance, doing things like studying where the best place to sit in a theater or a concert hall is. And I mean, that just strikes me so much as like, This must just be human nature because, you know, you have music nerds, you know, and I'm not disparaging music nerds, but you have music nerds basically who will do just that, who will learn all they can about a band or a group or an artist and do everything they can not only to connect with that artist, but also to find the best way to consume that product. Yeah. And with that background, in the early 1850s, the first big music stars were born. And most notably, we have in the U.S. at least, Swedish opera singer Jenny Lind, whose U.S. tour was a phenomenon. I mean, this was partially due to P.T. Barnum's marketing prowess because, I mean, long before she set foot in the United States to do this tour, he, you know, basically did all of this PR campaigning, being like, Jenny Lind is coming and it will change your life. And people went bananas for her. Yeah, and what's funny, I mean, to show you how bananas they went, um, I knew the name Jenny Lind, but I didn't know why. And so when Kristen and I were talking about this, I looked up like, okay, why do I know Jenny Lind from being a furniture company? And I Googled it. No, Jenny Lind was not a furniture company. There is a very specific style of bed called the Jenny Lind bed. It's one of those spool beds. If you have any antiques or know anyone with antiques, you've probably seen the style of bed. My family has them. She was so popular that she was one of the first entertainers of that caliber to have things named for her, like a bed. But also, I mean, there were Jenny Lind gloves. There were there was all sorts of consumer products around at the time that were named after her or dedicated to her because that's how much people loved, adored, and wanted a piece of her. Yeah, wasn't there even a Jenny Lind tobacco? Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you know you've made it when you've got your own <laughs> tobacco. It's kind of like how, you know, every pop star has her own perfume. Right. <laughs> but fans were so wild for her that they called it Lind Mania. Mm. And fans went so wild for her that they even called this Lind Mania. And there was one excerpt from a newspaper, I forget which one it was, of the... Journalists essentially being like, sell all of your possessions if you have to. You have to get a ticket to go see Jenny Lind. And descriptions of these concerts were people 
would, I mean, it was almost like a mob, a crazed mob, just clamoring to see her. You could get injured at a Jenny Lind concert in the 1850s because, I mean, if people want to see her, they will trample you to get a better look at her. Victorians be tripping. That's right. Well, (laughs) and that's happening in the United States. Meanwhile, in Europe, we have pianist and composer Franz Liszt, who incites Listomania, which, if that sounds familiar, is probably because of that Phoenix song. Listomania, which is now going to be in my head for the rest of the day. But List was the first performer to walk out on stage first to take his seat at the piano bench to do kind of the dramatic entrance. Mm -hmm. And he also positioned the piano to allow the audience to see his face. So, you know, the piano is turned to its side rather than him sitting behind the piano. And boy, did the ladies go wild for Liszt. I know, I love this. Stephen Huff, who's a world-renowned concert pianist, said that we hear about women throwing their clothes onto the stage and taking his cigar butts and placing them in their cleavages. Which sounds a little dangerous. First of all, that's plural, and I love that, cleavages. (laughs) Watch out for cleavages burns (laughs) from cigar butts discarded. Also, I wonder where these cigar butts are coming from, because now I'm just imagining, List playing while smoking a cigar without any hands. Frantically smoking. Yeah, just puffing on it. Um, So clearly, this kind of, I mean, clearly this kind of fanaticism long predates Beatlemania. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we have to then talk about not Franz List specific mania or Lind mania, but musicomania in general which was first described as such in the 1830s and eventually fell out of use by the 20th century. But physicians had known since medieval times that music could end up having a really profound effect on you physically and psychologically. It can make you feel happy or sad or whatever, melancholy. But during this period in the 19th century... There was an actual doctor diagnosis defined as a variety of monomania in which the passion for music is carried to such an extent as to derange the intellectual faculties. Which sounds a lot like how fangirls are described, one-directioners crying at the side of Harry Styles. It sounds a lot like these early descriptions of musicomania, which really was not gendered at all Mm -mm. at the time, although there was certainly a backlash to musicomania, which is reminiscent of the modern day marginalization of teeny boppers and fangirls, because apparently there were calls for more classical appreciation of music because fans were, quote, too invested in the wrong ways and for the wrong reasons. And so music snobs of the day would differentiate between the ordinary fan who lacked appropriate education and taste, who, I mean, it sounds a lot like you know, the, the record store clerk stereotype of like, mm-hmm. even if you like a certain album, they'll still give you the stink eye because you probably just don't know enough about how it was made or how to appropriately listen to it. Um, but then they also had the musician and the refined fan, the fan who really understood the music to a degree to which they could appropriately and with a level head listen to it. Right. And I mean, I'm sure those are the people who are picking the right seat in the concert hall to hear the music best. And they're not going wild Mm -mm. over it. They're probably not too emotive. It's like, no, it's it's a wonderful June. Wonderful (laughs) June. Yeah. And I mean, there were even music snobs who looked down on music fans, which honestly wasn't a term until a little bit later, like in the early 20th century, but looked down on fans who would listen to the record or the performance too much and then get sick of it, 
they were like, obviously, you're not a good enough consumer of this classical, beautiful music if you're going to listen to it all the time until you get sick of it. I am just going to listen to it the once or the twice and really appreciate it. And of course, this development of music fandom, particularly as we move into the early 20th century, is also facilitated by technological advances that allows you to not only consume music in live venues to go to the pleasure garden and see the virtuoso of your choice, but also listen to recordings of the virtuoso or of Jenny Lind at home. And there's also sheet music being produced. And Mm -hmm. also you do have more of the performances being turned into this kind of entertainment industry. And then in the 1920s and 30s, this is when the first fan clubs Emerge. So we're really getting serious about our fandom post World yeah. War One. Yeah, we're coming together. I mean, I mean, imagine how different it would have been to be in a fan club in the 1930s as opposed to 2015 when you have the Internet. Back then, you had to be really freaking committed to communicating with your fellow fans and consuming all of these you know, products, whether it's sheet music or the records themselves or whatever. Yeah. And you probably don't even need fan clubs today because... Tumblr is pretty much just a giant fan club (laughs) for different things. But once you get into mid-century in the 1950s, you have the even more monetization of music, particularly with the development of pop music. And when we have pop music and bubblegum pop in particular come about, and these record labels really getting savvy about targeting their fans, this is when fandom, though... And criticism of music fandom becomes less generalized and more gendered. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Kristen mentioned earlier that the whole musicomania thing was really not not gendered. It, it honestly seemed to be more about class, about and not even necessarily financial stuff, but just you were on a higher plane of existence if you consumed and enjoyed music in a certain way versus the people that you look down upon. You know, people who had musicomania were obviously not to be trusted. We don't like those people. But it was all sort of equal opportunity snobbery. There were women who wrote in their diaries sniffing at like, ugh. Look at these ma- writhing masses of people. How disgusting. Same as you did with men. And they were writing about people of either gender. And so it is interesting to see that evolution in the mid 20th century about fangirls and teeny boppers specifically consuming music that honestly, as we'll get into here in a second, I mean, it was made for them. Yeah. And we'll get into all of that and talk more about teeny boppers past and present when we come right back from a quick break. And now, back to the show. So in the first half of the podcast, we talked about the history of music fandom that I know I wasn't familiar with, but now it's time to pick up with a name that really launched the whole teeny bopper thing, which is Frank Sinatra. Yeah, I mean, this was in the 1940s, and Sinatra was, he was a, a younger gentleman. He was kind of handsome. I mean, he, he had kind of a pointy face. Yeah. If we're going to be honest. He was kind of the uh, original, can we say the original Justin Bieber? <laughs> uh, I don't want to disparage Frank Sinatra in that way. But I mean, he really incited, though, the first modern fangirling of girls crying and loving him and just wanting, I mean, they just wanted Frankie. Well, yeah, but I mean, I think that goes 
you know, not to go too deep into Frank Sinatra, but I mean, I think the whole issue with getting the teeny bopper love and tears and emoting over Frank Sinatra goes back to what we talked about with Taylor Swift in our last episode, because Taylor Swift is herself a very young woman, very successful, knows how to connect with fans who are also very young, much younger than even she is. And I think that Frank Sinatra was one of the first early very young performers who was able to connect with young women who were all of a sudden part of this rising consumer culture, part of this new teenage group of people that had never really been recognized before. That's such a great point. And also with Sinatra, he I'm sure he was not the first to do this, but he also was available in so many different ways to his fans because not only could they see him at appearances or see him singing live, he was also in movies as well. Mm-hmm. So you could watch him act, you could watch him fall in love. I mean, there, you know, he's definitely a multi-dimensional star. Um, but then in the 1950s, we have the emergence of bubblegum pop that, according to the book Girlhood in America, quote, set the precedent of style over substance in the musical consumption of teenage girls because it was really manufactured for them. Yeah, it was. Uh, you definitely had a lot of of record industry executives coming together and saying, "Okay, so we're we're in the post war period." I don't know if anybody was actually saying that in the fifties, but they're in the post war period. We have this new group of people we're recognizing called teenagers, and they have consumer power somewhat, a little bit yeah. now, and and they're they have a little bit more agency than children of their age group fifty years prior. Let's package something for them. And so this sort of came along with the whole advent of Top 40 Radio, which relied on a specific teen appealing formula to turn a profit. Yeah, because teens were spending time by themselves in ways that they never had before. They're also dating. They also had cars um, and they also had magazines being created specifically for them. Sixteen magazine in particular was one of the earliest and most widely circulated teen magazines that totally fed early fandom. Um, this is coming again from Girlhood in America saying, quote, teeny bopper fandom is essentially a subculture of consumption. Yeah. And I sort of this is something that if you really think about it, it makes total sense, but that I still hated reading because it, it made me sad for young girls who apparently can't win. Um, so this is also coming from Girlhood in America, and he writes that the genre is primarily a commodity to be marketed and sold to teenage girls. It uses a specific formula to turn a profit, leaving many to believe that the fans who consume the product are cultural dupes. So basically... Girls are being blamed for consuming the very things that they are meant to consume, according to record industry executives or radio DJs or what have you. Yeah, I mean, and and sure, there is a lot of it that is very formulaic. I mean, go back and listen to our episode a while back on boy bands. I mean, these things are specifically built and made for this specific audience. And so... From then, though, until now, when you read media descriptions of this um, of this demographic of the teeny bopper demographic, which is which makes it sound like such fogies I know. to say. I mean, also, I just use the word fogey, <laughs> but to call them teeny boppers. Um, but even today, they're described as just having really no taste whatsoever. It's all emotion and hormones. 
and no discriminating taste whatsoever. We're oh, just yeah. looking for a, a Frank Sinatra, essentially. Oh, yeah, because you've got people who are saying if you are consuming and rabidly consuming um, something that is prepackaged and bubblegum popish, then, yeah, then you must not have any discriminating taste. You're just, as, as we will talk about, a lot of people just dismiss girls who like pop music as just this writhing mass of unbridled girlhood sexuality. Yeah, and a lot of pop music scholars mark this point in the emergence, in the development of the music industry in the United States as this uh, sort of dichotomy between male pop and rock fans seen as active consumers. They're choosing what they like. They're smarter and more discriminating in whatever goes in their record player versus passive fangirls mm-hmm. who are just sort of we're spoon fed yeah. our tastes. Yeah. Just tell us who the new pop star off the conveyor belt is and we'll just consume this music and buy the posters and buy the tickets. Et cetera, yeah. Et who should I have a crush on? And I do remember that in my own experience when I first heard about Hanson because <laughs> friends of mine had crushes on them. And it was a whole thing of, you know, which one did you like? Of course, it was the middle one. Obviously, he was the hottest. Um, <laughs> and so I would pre-anticipated liking Mbop and wanting to have a crush on them. So there is, I mean, there is that aspect to it as well. I have something to confess. What? I think you and I in our lives in 1997 were acting out the dichotomy of which we are currently speaking. Really? Because I remember being in sixth or seventh grade whenever Mbop came out. Well, for us, I mean, whatever, however old everybody else was. But looking at it and being like, hmm. Well, Caroline, you got to remember, too, I was homeschooled. So I I, I will play that card. <laughs> I wasn't I was- some edgy urban youth. <laughs> Well, I but, certainly wasn't an edgy urban homeschooler. But, but I don't know like where my snobbery even came from. It's not like I was actively consuming any type of music other than what I heard on the radio, but just l- looking down my nose at at this pop music. I think it was m- less the music, though, for me, and just the fact that I was primed for crushing. Heck yeah. I loved a crush. Yeah. So I was, sorry, sorry. I was really busy crushing on Gavin Rossdale, so I didn't have time for Taylor Hanson. Oh yeah, I jumped on that train a little bit later. <laughs> I was just, just that was probably just a late bloomer. But anyway, um, also at this time though, it's not just male pop stars who are being developed and groomed for the bubblegum audience, but also you do have girl groups like the Ronettes and the Shirelles who are also being pitched directly to girls, sort of mm-hmm. like uh, proto Taylor Swift's kind yeah. of, sort of. Yeah, in honor of this episode, last night I was listening to my um, Marvelettes Pandora station, and it's all of these wonderful, wonderful girl groups. And it's interesting, though, to listen to that station and hear all of these bubblegum pop, totally manufactured groups, girls who may or may not have even known each other being dragged together by rec- uh, record executives to make money. But the whole thing about those girl groups is even if they weren't doing their own songwriting, which they weren't, you had people like Carol King, for instance, writing a lot of the lyrics for these girl groups to sing. 
the songs were still providing a window into the emotional world of young women. And this is something that Andy Zeisler wrote about in Feminism and Pop Culture. That, that sure, they're manufactured. Sure, it's pop. It's not like the highest denominator or whatever, but it's still great music. And it's still for girls. And it's just like Taylor Swift is today. It's giving girls of that era something that they can look at and relate to. Yeah, absolutely. And in the late 1940s and definitely in the 1950s, sort of this groundwork has been laid so that also in the 1950s and 60s, once Elvis comes around and then the Beatles all hell kind of breaks loose mm-hmm. fan wise. And, but that also sort of cements this stereotype as well of the fawning, crying, hysterical. That word comes up a lot mm-hmm. and it's important that it does come up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and the perception hasn't improved since then. Yeah, it certainly hasn't. Um, I do think it is interesting though that there is so much literature out there about young girl fans, whether they're the teeny boppers of the 50s or the Swifties of today. But um, Jacqueline Edmondson edited this book, Music in American Life, that did talk about the whole pop versus rock, feminine versus masculine, active versus passive thing, and said that although girls and women became an integral part of the popular music industry, they were constantly devalued and objectified. I mean, it goes back to that whole thing of Rock being serious, rap and hip hop being hyper masculine, and pop is just this thing that gets shoved aside as valueless because it is consumed by girls and women. And there was a note as well in the Continuum Encyclopedia of Popular Music in the World talking about how popular music scholars have really gone back and, quote, challenged negative and stereotyped conceptualizations of female fans who have regularly been presented in news reports and popular literature as passive consumers. There's that word again, passive, uncritically supporting mass produced music or as swooning teenagers idolizing male pop stars. Yeah, and the thing you get a lot, too, the more you read about this, is the the recognition that... A lot of it has to do with the idea of the feminine and the female being considered the other. Um, Asia Romano, who wrote an article in The Colonel called The Teens on Tumblr Are All Right, talks about how teenage girls continue to be one of the world's prime targets for being held up as a social example of something alien, foreign, and overtly sexualized, a writhing primordial mass of orgiastic emotions waiting to be tapped by adult men who treat their identities as a bizarre spectacle. Because when you think about it, especially when you read, and we'll talk about this article a little later, when you read like the the GQ piece about One Direction and talking about their fans, and I mean the way they describe these young girls is a hormone bomb, I believe was the way they described them. Well, there was just a lot of horrifying, like a dark pink mass of blah blah blah. It just it got a little too a little too sexual, especially since the girls they're talking about are like eleven. Um, but it's strange that nobody seems to be able to step back and say. Wait, okay, this is just, this is just another half of the population doing something like they want to do. Maybe we should question why the other half of the population does things like they do. For instance, you know, men going nuts over sports or sports teams or whatever. Or going nuts over music as well, but just in a different kind of way. And at this point, I think it's worth noting that this conversation really 
is not an argument on behalf of like the fine musical quality of all pop music. It's right. not about the music. It's more about this persistent pattern of uh, like marginalizing this very specific demographic mm-hmm. and you throw pop music under the bus along with it as well. But what's fascinating to see is just how how the media even approaches fangirls. It's like we still don't know how to wrap our minds around these young girls. There was even an article about this in the Wall Street Journal, of all places, called Inside the Brains of Justin Bieber Fans, which interviewed these neurologists being like, What's happening inside <laughs> their brains? I mean, what what would compel a 12-year-old to cry at the sight of One Direction? <laughs> and answering this very serious and hard-hitting question, uh, neuroscientists and neurologists were basically saying that this experience of listening to Taylor Swift or watching One Direction releases... Dopamine, which is, of course, a neurotransmitter involved in pleasure and addiction. It provides the same rush as eating chocolate or winning for a compulsive gambler. Yeah, so we like it, in other words. <laughs> yeah, we, we just really like it and it makes us feel good. We like it. Now, it was noteworthy, though, that, and this is nothing against Dr. Daniel Levitin conducting this research at all, um, but I did think it was interesting how he said that these musical tastes are really formed and wired in our brains in the teen years and really become part of our brain's internal wiring. So that, for instance, in my case, when I hear Mbop, <laughs> I am taken back to when I was 11 or 12 years old, listening and being like, oh man, they're homeschooled too. I know. Well, it's... <laughs> I didn't mean to totally skip over what you just said. Sorry. Uh, my tween dreams. Yeah, your tween dreams. Of homeschool romance with the middle, with the middle Hanson brother. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this, I feel like dude roommate has said similar things to me, although his, his brain stunting came a little bit later, I guess. He's still obsessed with the Ataris. Oh yeah. So he, he formed that emotional obsessive bond with a pop punk band. Yeah, it's just, it's just nostalgia. Yeah, it's, that's period. all it is. But there's also too, almost every, anytime this conversation comes up of like, why Beatlemaniacs? Why One Directioners? Why Justin Bieber fans? There's also this talk of safe sexuality. And we talked about this a lot too in our episode on boy bands. Um, it's like, Calm down, parents. It's just these are just kind of like practice boyfriends, which is yeah. also highly heteronormative. And we don't even have time to get into uh, sexual orientation and race when it comes to fandom, the portrayal of fandom as well, because it is very white and very straight. Um, but there's this it's almost like, OK, we can calm down because this is a safe way for mm-hmm. girls to express their sexualities. We, we should actually be glad that they're kissing posters and not actually making out with real boys. Yeah, well, I mean, it's when you think about yourself being in sixth grade or whatever, is it really so hard to understand this and to imagine it? Because you're you're hitting puberty, you've got these hormones rushing through you. For the first time, you're looking around going like, for the first time, you're Tina Belcher, basically. You're looking around and being like, butts, awesome. And so... Just like it's no surprise that girls of the 50s consumed the music that was packaged and presented to and for them, is it really any surprise that a girl of 13 would 
who's suddenly awakening to the idea that, hey, I really like butts, <laughs> boys' butts, would look at somebody like One Direction and start fantasizing or almost obsessing over them? Yeah, and not almost. I mean, plenty of girls do outright obsess over these things. I mean, I outright obsessed over Prince William, truth be told, when I was young. <laughs> I I thought I would be Kate Middleton, perchance. Um, but, and this is also, too, all in the context of living in a society where expressing outright that kind of sexuality, the sexual desires, Tina Belchering, mm-hmm. um, is not okay yeah. for girls. So it's not only a thing of, and I think that that's often left out of these conversations of like, well, no wonder they're freaking out because in a lot of ways we're kind of pent up. Yeah. Um, but one quote though from that Wall Street Journal article that jumped out was, Boys also develop musical tastes in this phase of life, but adolescent girls are far more likely to become infatuated with pop stars, experts say, because they are awakening to romantic and sexual feelings that are both intoxicating and scary. And it's like, but what about the boys, though? So they're doing all of this. They're developing these kinds of things. They are also, you know, having experiencing sexual feelings that are probably both intoxicating and scary. <laughs> but we aren't as weirded out by that. Right. It's almost like a, a coming of age, uh, an expected and accepted phase that a boy will like, you know, tape up pictures of Megan Fox or whoever in his bedroom. And, you know, we were all like, oh, that's just a pervy little 13 year old boy. It's what they go through. Whereas there's not that same acceptance and a pass is not given to young girls. Instead, it's like, uh, it's icky and scary that you're all so obsessed with these pop stars. Yeah, how strange. And also, too, this is around the time there were every now and then you'll have comparisons to boys and men's obsessions with sports teams to the point that they are also yelling and screaming and crying but there, but that doesn't seem strange at all. There's never any like, hmm, well, what's going on inside those fans' brains? Right. But coming back to the girls, the teeny, the girl teeny boppers, emotions aside and perhaps unrealistic obsessions with boy bands aside, it's still undeniable that this is such an influential group. I mean, these girls prop up in a lot of ways. The music industry. I mean, we talked about in the Taylor Swift episode how, I mean, her sales of 1989 accounted for 22% of all record sales in the United States the week that it came out. Yeah, and I mean, this is just part of a wave that has been waving since the 1850s. There is nothing new about consumer culture when it comes to music and the fact that these fans who are so disparaged so often, they really are giving these artists quite the fat paycheck. And, and you know, so for that, they're disparaged. They're, they're buying something that's prepackaged. They're listening to something that is, that is super hyper produced. Um, and, Everybody says that that's just not good enough. But as Asia Romano over at the Colonel pointed out in August 2014, it's not like we have to worry so much about the future of our country based on the fact that kids like pop music. I mean, they've always liked pop music. If anything, these kids might be better off than we were, she argues, because they're so social media and real world savvy, much more so than we give them credit for. And they happen to be much more likely to engage in actual real life activism, for instance. 
Yeah, there was a there was a mom who wrote a column. I think it came out in the Guardian. Who talking about her daughter, who is a diehard One Direction fan. She's a One Directioner, and she said. Yeah, you can disparage her all you want, but she has demonstrated and learned all sorts of real world skills, such as navigating her way to a concert, like getting on the subway with her friends, figuring out how to budget and then buy a ticket and also meeting all of these other girls, Mm -hmm. these other One Directioners as well. And she was like, I think it's actually been rather valuable for her. I mean, that's a that's a really glass half full kind of perspective but i think that it's uh, worth opening up our uh our perception of who these girls are because a lot of times we just kind of distill them down into just a writhing pink hormone bomb waiting to go off rather than oh no these are individuals and they probably do all have different tastes in certain ways i mean they you know we all they have to at least choose which one direction band member they like the most. <laughs> That's right. Well, I thought an interesting perspective on it, kind of jumping off from the whole using social media to connect, using social media to participate in activism. There's sort of echoes of that from the fandom around girl groups of the 1960s. And this is coming from that book, Feminism and Pop Culture by Andy Zeisler. And she was quoting Susan Douglas, who was talking about how back in the 60s, yes, you have commercialism and all of this pop music, but the girls who were listening to it got this sense of euphoria, she was saying. It wasn't just the the happiness of listening to this music or purchasing it and participating in this culture. But she said that for tens of millions of young girls who started feeling at the same time, that they as a generation would not be trapped. And there was planted the tiniest seed of a social movement. And again, that might seem like a glass half full, kind of a pie in the sky idea. But, you know, we did mention earlier that those girl groups of the 50s and 60s, it was really the first time that female singers were singing lyrics about female emotions. Yeah. Well, and even when it comes to the Beatle maniacs, there have also been uh, feminists who have said, hey, well, this is also, too, the first time we really saw the female gaze in mass. Maybe right. we're also a little uncomfortable with this just because the tables have turned in that way of mm-hmm. you have thousands and thousands of girls actively lusting after a group of men. And hey, we probably just hadn't seen that very much anymore. And we still to this day are uncomfortable with seeing that kind of um, sexuality perhaps on display. Right, because it's the whole heteronormative male culture being the default. It's why no one questions crazy male sports fandom. It's why it's cool for my former dude roommate to scream at the television or lose his mind at a UGA game, but it's looked down upon if a girl loses her mind screaming over Taylor Swift. Well, and I think this too circles back not only to our episode on boy bands, but also to our bitch episode because we kicked it off talking about basic bitches and the hallmark of a basic bitch is also a diehard love of Taylor Swift, which I think, too, reflects this kind of, you know, eschewing any sign of just unabashed femininity, because as writer and editor, Rachel Adidin said to Time Magazine talking about this issue of uh, fangirls, and this was more of fangirls and geek culture being disparaged. She said, quote, feminization is almost universally seen as depreciation of value. 
And it's not only that depreciation of value, it is also a giant pushing together of really different groups of people. It's assuming that all of these young girls, and can we not forget the young boys, too, who really like this music? Yes. I mean, talk about, like, heteronormative culture. It is very heteronormative. And it honestly wasn't until recently that popular music studies have really highlighted that diversity. And this is coming again from the Continuum Encyclopedia of Popular Music in the World, which cited a 1990 study by a pop music scholar, which found that female Elvis fans had their own particular personal and also political uses for the performer rather than simply worshiping Elvis Mm -hmm. because they should worship Elvis. And same thing. There was another study that they cited um, talking about how being a fan is, quote, more of a celebration of girl culture and a process through which female sexuality and identity are produced as it is about the male performers involved. That makes a lot of sense. Totally. Yeah. I mean, if you have, I don't want to keep going back to the sports example because I realize that things are not always black and white with clear lines. There's plenty of overlap here. Yeah. And women love sports women too. Women love sports too. Yeah. But I mean, just to kind of pick on an example, I mean, there's a lot of social acceptance for boys from a young age learning to love sports and using it as a way to bond with other men in their lives whether those are friends or dads or brothers or whoever. And why should girls' fandom or girls' love of, whether it's a pop princess or a boy band or whoever, why should that be less valued? Mm -hmm. Well, and a lot of, it's probably for that reason, though, that a lot of uh, analysts and scholars have noted how, in a lot of ways, diehard fandom is transgressive of the appropriate feminine roles, both then and still today. And we see that just kind of reflected in the kind of brush off that they often get. Yeah. Now, can fangirls get obsessive and go wild and also say horrible things on social media if you disagree with their taste? Yes. Fans Mm -hmm. are not perfect. No fan is perfect. But I think it's just worth considering why teeny boppers in particular, the female teeny bopper, is just so universally maligned. It will be interesting, Kristen, when you and I are podcasters in our 80s, to look back and see how this particular point in time where we have the intersection of pop music and fandom and all of that stuff and social media, how that will affect things. Because you and I in the beginning of the podcast kept mentioning changing technology, changing methods for consuming music and all of that stuff and the way that it fostered that music lover culture. It will be interesting to see how all of these young girls who now feel like they have a voice on social media and can connect with each other over their fandom, but can also say, hey, screw you, GQ writers, for portraying me as a terrible person and portraying Harry Styles as a terrible person. It will just be interesting to see how and whether that changes the culture and whether it gives young women more of a voice as they get older. And you can tune in to that episode in 2090 on <laughs> Stuff Grandma <laughs> Never Told You. That's right. But now we want to hear from Teeny Boppers fangirls listening. What do you think about all of this? Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. We definitely want to hear from fans. Have you been dismissed simply for being a 
fan who also happens to be a girl or a woman, let us know. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So we've got a couple of letters here about our episode on ankles and kinkles. And this one is coming from Wendy, who writes, My husband relayed to me the story of a teammate on his high school football team. Hey, guys in sports, call back. This individual was a linebacker with a stocky build and was overall very athletic, but was very aware of his lack of ankles. You mentioned that there were no exercises to slim the ankle, but the approach he took was to perform tons of calf raises to make his calves more prominent, giving the illusion of a smaller ankle. One day he burst into the weight room exclaiming, I have ankles, showing them off to his fellow teammates. He was so enthusiastic. He was also totally open about his excitement with the other guys, which I love. And also it shows that men do talk to each other about more than sports and babes in the locker room. I thought it would be interesting to share that this was not just a lady-centric issue. Love the podcast and keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Wendy. Well, I have a letter here from Deanna who starts off the email with three thank yous, and so you're welcome. Uh, she says, I have cankles. It is genetic. My grandmother on my dad's side never wore dresses, and now I am in the same boat. It is a painful thing to see people staring at my ankles or making comments. Don't even think about skinny jeans, which you didn't mention, but it is a problem for people like me. I know what they're saying. As you said, there is nothing I can do about it. I have large wrists, too, and although it helped me as an athlete, it will never be the definition of the Gibson girl we women are still held out to be. Even finding ski boots is impossible at times. Oprah once mentioned cankles years ago and laughed at the term. I cried. Even Oprah, who acts as though she is the defender of all people who are different, didn't get me. I hope this message reaches those who don't or can't understand my position in the hope it will help alleviate the judgment. So thank you, Deanna, and I'm sorry Oprah doesn't support you. Yeah, Oprah, maybe so blind to cankles. Uh, even Oprah's not perfect, though. It's yeah. a good reminder. Yeah. <laughs> so if you have letters to send to us, though, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And we'd love to hear from you. But if you'd like to give us a shout out on social media, you can find links to all of those places, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with our sources. So you can read along with us if you like. All of that's over at stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 